John 20, 11 to 18. But Mary stood weeping outside the tomb, and as she wept, she stooped to look into the tomb, and she saw two angels in white sitting where the body of Jesus had lain, one at the head and one at the feet. They said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? And she said to them, They have taken away my Lord, and I do not know where they have laid him. Having said this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing, but she did not know that it was Jesus. Jesus said to her, Woman, why are you weeping? Whom are you seeking? Supposing him to be the gardener, she said to him, Sir, if you have carried him away, tell me where you have laid him, and I will take him away. Jesus said to her, Mary. She turned and said to him in Aramaic, Rabbani, which means teacher. Jesus said to her, Do not cling to me, for I have not yet ascended to the Father. But go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. Mary Magdalene went and announced to the disciples, I have seen the Lord, and that he had said these things to her. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Joel. Well, good morning again. <clears throat> During the season of Eastertide, so these next few weeks or so, we are going to be taking a look at these passages in the New Testament where the risen Jesus appears to people. I mean, when Jesus was raised from the dead, he didn't immediately ascend into heaven. For 40 days, he interacted with his friends, he interacted with his family, and interacted with his disciples. And it's, these are fascinating stories because he encounters and has these interactions with people in, in, in a way that's, that's very meaningful, in a way that's very intimate, personal. He encounters them in their fear, in their doubts, their shame, their failures. And so I think these stories are so important because they show us that the, if Jesus is alive, then he can meet us in those vulnerable and very human moments as well. And, and in the story that we're going to look at this morning, we see that the risen Jesus encounters us in our sadness. He meets us in uh, our sadness. If, if you notice, the story begins with Mary Magdalene at the tomb weeping. That's what it says in verse 11. You can also translate that um, wailing. This is not a picture of someone who's just dabbing their cheeks with a tissue. That's not this kind of crying. This is like ugly crying. This is undone sobbing. And here's why she's so undone is because just a few days before this, she saw Jesus, who is her friend and her hero, her savior, uh, die. This is someone that meant everything to her, and she watched him die, which in and of itself is unbelievably painful, just the loss and the grief of losing someone that you're close to. But, but it's worse than that because she saw somebody that she loved suffer. She watched somebody that she loved uh, uh, be tortured, saw him crying out in agony, just this, this, I mean, can you imagine how traumatizing that would have been for her to have these images seared into her brain of here's this person that she loves and she just watched him uh, suffer in such a cruel way and there was nothing she could do about it. Totally powerless. Just watch this unfold in front of her. And so we looked at this last week, but she goes to the tomb. This is where we find her this morning. And she goes there to be close to his remains, 
goes there to mourn, goes there to grieve. And when she shows up to the tomb, uh, the stone has been rolled away, and, and it's empty. And this is, the, this, is what, this is what breaks her. This is the moment where she's just, where it's just too much. Because can you imagine going to the cemetery, going to the gravesite of um, uh, someone that you love that you have lost, and you go to the cemetery to put flowers on the tombstone, and, and it's not there. It's, it's dug up. It's, it's not just this feeling of there's this sacred space that has been desecrated and ruined, but it's this feeling of powerlessness of what have they done? What have they done with his body? And she, here she is. This is the moment where it's just it's too, on top of everything that she's experienced, it's, it's unbearable. It's too much. And so this is the moment where she breaks, wailing, sobbing. And the question is, does Jesus have anything to say to us in those moments? Because you've experienced those moments, those moments where it just feels like it's just too much. The grief, the loss, the challenges, the burden, where it just feels like it's, I, I can't carry what I'm being asked to carry. It's unbearable. Does Jesus have anything for us in those moments of just grief darkness and loss? And the answer from this passage is yes. That the risen Jesus encounters us in our sadness. And I want to show you that he does three things. He seeks us, he knows us, and he heals us. That's what he does with our sadness. He seeks us, he knows us, and he heals us. So let's look at this idea first of how he seeks us. Uh, like I said last week, we looked at the passage where Mary shows up to the tomb, and it's empty, and so she runs and gets Peter and John, two of Jesus' close friends, and they run back to the tomb, and they investigate the scene, and they conclude, oh my goodness, he's been raised from the dead, and so they go home. But she's not buying that explanation. She still thinks he's, he's dead. Somebody has moved his, uh, his corpse. And so it says in verse 11 uh, that she stoops to look into the tomb to get a closer look. And there's these two angels that are there. And they say to her, woman, why are you weeping? Which seems a little insensitive of the circumstances that this is like showing up at a funeral and going up to the widow and saying, I, I don't understand, why are, you, why are you weeping right now? Because to them, from their perspective, the empty tomb is not a cause for grief. The empty tomb is a cause for celebration. So she says, you know, that she, she kind of reinforces this idea. They've taken his body. I don't know where they've put him. And then she hears this noise behind her. And she turns, and it's Jesus. She doesn't recognize him, though, for whatever reason. She, she, she mistakes him to be the gardener which is somewhat reasonable because she is in a garden and she has no expectation that Jesus is going to be raised from the dead. So she's, you know, she has no assumption that this is not Jesus that's talking to her. And, and, and he asks her the same question, why are you weeping? Who are you seeking? And she says to Jesus the same idea, somebody's taking his body. Did you move his body? Just tell me where his body is. But here's what's fascinating. Jesus has appeared to her. And I think that's incredibly significant, especially when you think about the fact that Jesus could have made his resurrection debut in any way to anybody, but he chooses her. In fact, here's what commentator, scholar Dale Bruner uh, says. He says, she is the first person ever to experience the personal presence of the risen Lord. 
Why her? I mean, Peter and John, his two best friends, were right there. They missed him by like two minutes. Why didn't he appear to them? And then when you think about, well, I mean, Jesus could have made this debut any way he wanted. Why didn't he show up at a big crowd of people in the temple and say, I don't know, here I am, joke's on y'all, guess who's back, back again. Uh, he wouldn't have quoted Eminem when he did it, though. Um, but why, why, why her in this moment? And, he, and I think here's why. He comes to her first because she's the one that has the biggest need. She's the one who needs this the most. She's the most overwhelmed, the most distraught, the most devastated, and he comes to her. He always comes to those with the greatest need. Uh, Catherine and I, we have two young children, and this happens very frequently in our house, where, where one of them will get hurt. One of them will hurt themselves. They trip, they fall, they skin their knee, they do something. One of them is crying. And for whatever reason, the other child doesn't notice or can't really read the room and doesn't really realize this is happening. So they will come and try to get our attention in that moment and want to show us a drawing that they just drew or tell us a story about something that happened at school that day. And we have to say in that moment, I, I love you, I wanna see that drawing, I wanna hear that story really bad, but I I'm, give me a few minutes because this child needs my attention. When you have a child that's crying, when you have a child that's hurting, every other need gets reprioritized. You can be in the middle of a very important email. You have a child that's fallen, hurting, crying, everything gets demoted. Because when the greatest need comes in front of you, 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 you move towards it. That, that's what Jesus is doing. He's like a heat-seeking missile. He's, it's like he's scanning and saying, where is the hurt? Where is the most, uh, where's the most amount of tears, the most amount of pain? And he beelines it right for her. And what I, what I love about this is that it shows you, this just reveals to you the heart of God, that he seeks after us in our sadness. He does not wait for us to calm down and kind of regroup and then turn around and start seeking him. No, he does not. He seeks after us first. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, Psalm 34, verse 18 says this, the Lord is near to the brokenhearted. The Lord is near to the brokenhearted. You know, if you're anything like me, it's really, um, it, it's hard to show that side of yourself to other people, to let people see you when you are that raw and that undone and that uh, broken, because it's, it's such a vulnerable space for someone to see you like that. There's a, there's a real fear, at least a fe real fear in me, that if somebody sees me like that, they'll think differently of me. They'll think that uh, I'm, too, I'm too much or too sensitive or too needy. I'll feel like I'm, I'm, a, I'm burdening people with my tears in some ways. And so if you're anything like me, I, you know, we hide, stuff it down, put on the show, pretend. Because there is a real fear that our, our sadness will repel people. And there's a real truth to that. It might. But here's what you see from this story is that our sadness does not repel Jesus in fact, it attracts him to us. He's always drawing near to the brokenhearted. He's always moving towards the place that are in the, in the, in the, the, you know, the bottom of despair. 
Here's what's fascinating. In, in ministry, as I've gotten to hear people tell their stories, kind of their spiritual autobiography or their, their kind of their faith journey, nobody has told me the story where they said, everything in my life was working out great. I was happy. Uh, all those circumstances were working together. And, and so I became a Christian. Nobody says everything is great, and so I turn to Jesus. I've had I've heard lots of stories where people say, "Well, I became a Christian when I was when I was depressed, when I was suicidal, when my family was falling apart, when I was in the uh, you know at the uh, I couldn't sink any lower. That's when I encountered Jesus. When everything else got everything else got stripped away, and all that was left was Him." That's when I realized that he was with me in, in my sadness. I realize when you're in that place, it doesn't feel like he is near, but he's near. I realize when you're in that place, it can seem like he doesn't care about what I'm experiencing, but he does. He prioritizes you in your sadness. He seeks after us in our sadness. But it actually gets better. Story gets better because he doesn't just seek us he also knows us. He knows us. Let's look at that secondly. Verse 16 is really the whole turning point to this story because, you know, Mary is distraught. She's talking to Jesus, but she didn't recognize it's Jesus. But then verse 16 happens, and Jesus says to her, Mary, and she turns and she says to him in Aramaic, Rabboni, which means teacher. And you think, okay, why was that the moment? What was it about that moment that that's what clicked the lights on for her and she realized this is Jesus, this is the teacher, this is the rabbi? Well, think of it like this. Um, I've, I've never had a nickname my whole life. I've wanted nicknames. I tried to create my own nickname when I was in high school and it didn't stick, didn't work. And it's okay, I'm over it. I've, um, uh, after a lot of therapy, I've dealt with it. But, um, uh, but I give a lot of nicknames. I give a lot of nicknames to people. I, I give nicknames to people in our family. So Catherine, uh, I call her Cat. I call her Katrina. I don't know. That's, I'm the only one who calls her that. Um, both of our kids, I, I call each of them Monkey Bug. I don't know where that came from. Um, Zoe Kate, I call her Zoe Bear. Zozo the Bozo. Um, Reed, who's not in here right now uh, either. Um, I call him Redrick. I call him Reedy Beedy, Read the Bead, the Bead, Rito Burrito. He's got a lot. Um, Rito the Burrito, we're in a Speedo, in a tuxedo, getting bit by a mosquito, eating a Dorito, on and on. So, um, but I don't, you know, I don't know why I do this. I think this is a, a silly way for me to try to communicate something that's, that's deeply intimate, to try to communicate in this ridiculous way that I love you, that I enjoy you, that I cherish you. I'm so thankful to know you. I bring that up because I think Jesus is doing the same thing in this passage. When he speaks to her, if you noticed, it's strange. Uh, Mary responds to him in Aramaic. Now, the New Testament was written in Greek, so if you were reading in Greek, all of a sudden you would hear this foreign word, Rabboni, because she speaks in this foreign language. This is why uh, John, as the, as the writer here, adds that little parenthesis, oh, by the way, that means teacher. But why is she speaking to him in Aramaic? And here's why. Because Jesus is using that language to speak to her. 
all through this passage, whenever Mary is referenced, like in verse 11, uh, when, when Mary is referenced, it's, it's the Greek word, Maria, but it just gets translated into English as Mary. But when Jesus speaks to her in verse 16, it gets translated in English as Mary, but that's not, he, he doesn't say Maria, he uses the Aramaic word Miriam, which is the word her, her parents would have named her. It was the name that those closest to her would have used. And so he, it's like he's saying, Zoe Bear, Rido, Reedy Beedy. He's using this intimate language. And when that word goes into her ears and it goes into her heart, that's when the moment clicks. Oh, my goodness. This is him. Because what you see here is a God that knows our names. Isaiah 43.1 says this. It says, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. John 10, verse 3, just a few chapters uh, before this episode, Jesus himself says, the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name, and he leads them out. Jesus doesn't just move towards us in our sadness. He knows us in our sadness. We don't need a God that is powerful and strong and distant and removed from our lives. We need a God that intimately knows us, that knows our names, that knows our struggles, that knows our insecurities, that knows the things that we hate about ourselves. And we have a God like that. We have a God that knows us, that knows our names and speaks to us in the most tender, gentle, personal ways. Prior to uh, working here, Catherine and I were on staff with a campus ministry called RUF. Many of you are familiar with it. We were at the University of Tennessee. And years ago, I don't know, maybe, I don't know, a number of years ago now, um, George Robertson, who's the pastor at Second Pres down the street, him and his wife brought their high school daughter to Knoxville to do a campus tour and uh, kind of check out the school as a possibility for where she might attend as a freshman. And we had never met the Robertsons before. They reached out to us, and we, we grabbed lunch with each other to uh, talk about campus, talk about RUF. We had lunch with each other for an hour or so. It was great. Lovely people. Went our separate ways after that lunch. That was that. Months passed, maybe a year or so after that passed, and Catherine and I found ourselves in Memphis for some reason, and we, were, we, were, we decided to worship at Second Pres, and uh, we're walking down the hallway right before worship, heading into the sanctuary, and we run into George, and he sees us and immediately says, Matt, Catherine, welcome, so glad y'all are here. What brings you to town? And Catherine and I were, were just like, how in the world does he remember us? I mean, you know Second Pres. If you've been there, there's like 8,000 people in that church. And for someone to, to be responsible for interacting with that many people, months removed from this thing, from a totally different context, for him to remember us, we were, we were totally blown away by. But there's this also, I'll tell you, you know, there's this feeling of just like, gosh, that was really meaningful, really special. For here's this person, you know, and, you know, we're, we're insecure if you're like, oh, but we're totally nobodies. Why would he remember us? To here's this person that took the time to remember us. That, that communicated something deep in us that, gosh, for the, to this guy, we, we matter. It's one reason of a million I could give you why George Robertson's awesome. 
But think about this. You have a God. You matter so much to this God that he would know your name. That, he, that his love for you is not just generic. It's not just vague of like, oh, I love everybody. No, he knows your name. His love for you is that personal, that intimate, that directed. He knows us. He seeks us in our sadness. He knows us in our sadness. Here's the last thing I'll say. He heals us. He heals us in our sadness as well. When I, when I was looking at this passage this week, I just it's just so rich. There's so much stuff in here. This is where I was like, man, I wish we could have another hour to look at the rest of this. But we can't because y'all would hate that. Um, but uh, I do want to give you just a quick flyover of three quick things that Jesus does to really heal Mary in this story, to transform her. The, the first thing that Jesus does is that he, uh, he gives her a family. You know, there, there they are, and uh, she recognizes Jesus, and then they embrace. This is, it's the first resurrection hug. And in verse 17, it's, it's kind of strange. Jesus asks her to stop hugging him. He says, do not cling to me which we're going to come back to in a second because it's weird. But then he goes on. He says, For I have not yet ascended to the Father, but go to my brothers and say to them, I am ascending to my Father and your Father, to my God and your God. This is the first time in the Gospel of John where Jesus talks like this. He, he's always talking about God as the Father. Or he's talking about God as my Father, but never your Father. This is the first time on the other side of the life and death of resurrection and in his resurrection where Jesus says, you have access, you have welcome into the family of God. He does not just provide the forgiveness for our sins, as glorious and as amazing as that is, but he brings us into a family to give us each other as well so that we get to experience in each other's presence, even in this, own, in this community, we get to experience the belonging that we have with him, that we're not alone in our sadness, in our despair, in our anxiety, in our depression. He also gives us each other, that we're not alone. He gives her a family. Here's the second thing he gives her. He gives her a purpose. Do you notice that he says, um, I want you to go, and I want you to go tell the others. And then in verse 18, at the end, she went. She goes. She does it. She is the first herald of the resurrection. She, she is the apostle to the apostles. She's the first one to go and to proclaim the good news that Jesus is alive. That here she is in her sadness and Jesus comes into her life and says, I've got a job for you. I have a role. There's a role for you to play still. He gives her a purpose. He gives her a mission. He, he gives her something to live for. He gives her a family, gives her a purpose, and here's the last thing he gives her. He gives her himself. When he says, do not cling to me, it sounds like he's being rude, right? Kind of like he's like, okay, that's enough. Like, get off me. It's not what he's doing. He's saying, you don't have to hold on to me as if you're afraid of losing me. Because he says, I'm about to ascend to my Father. And we know when he, when he ascends up to heaven, that's when he gives his spirit, his personal presence. So he's telling Mary, I know, I'm gonna go, I know it feels like I'm going away, but I'm actually going to be with you in a way that's more intimate, that's more close than, I, than you're experiencing in this moment. It's one thing to be with 
me. It's another thing for me to be within you. He is saying, I, I, I am going to, I, I'm going to inhabit you and indwell in you in such a way that nothing will be able to separate us. Nothing will be able to, to kind of rip me apart from you. You get me. He's the gift. I'm sure you've seen these videos uh, where a soldier will come home from deployment and surprise their kids or surprise their families. There's a ton of these videos out there. Every one of them will wreck you if you, if you watch them. Uh, a couple of days ago, I, was, I found myself deep in a YouTube vortex and um, came across one of these compilations. And one was of this family. There was a mom and two young kids in a kitchen Somebody's filming this on their phone. And Santa Claus is in the room. This is at Christmas time. And uh, he's wearing the big red outfit, the big red hat, the big white beard. Santa Claus is, you know, passing out these wrapped presents for the kids and for the moms. Like, oh, here's a present, young girl. And, and uh, they're like, oh, thanks, Santa. This is great. And after a few moments, um, he takes off his hat and lowers his beard and when, you know, they do the double take, and when they recognize that our dad is home, the kids scream, and the mom just cups her face and just like, she's just frozen looking at him. The kids toss their presents to the side and run and throw their arms around their dad. The mom eventually comes in. It's this, you know, family hug. They're all weeping. I'm watching this just in our kitchen, just sobbing out of control. And what I love about that video, in addition to all those videos, is that it just was so clear that the gift was him. When they realize that our dad is home, they don't care about their Christmas presents anymore. They throw them to the side. They haven't even unwrapped them yet. Because what matters is the fact that he's home. Dad is home, and he's in our arms. Mary is healed because she sees Jesus is alive, and she has him in her arms. And even though he says, I'm going away, I'm actually going to be with you. Nothing can separate me from you. He's the gift. Having him is what heals her. Because think about this. If, if Jesus was just a spiritual guru, just some spiritual teacher who died for a cause, that's an inspiring story. It might be an interesting story. It might be like, oh, he's, he's an example that I might want to emulate. But he's dead. He's gone. If Jesus is just a, a revolutionary who... who the state kills, then that might be a moving story. It might be a tragic story, but the revolution is over. He's dead. But if Jesus is alive, that means that he is so much more than a spiritual guru, so much more than a revolutionary. He is who he said he was. He's God in the flesh, and everything is true, that all of our sins are fully paid for on his death on the cross, that with his resurrection, he has conquered death itself, the kingdom has broken in and that the revolution of grace has just begun and that he has proven beyond a shadow of a doubt that he, that his love can never, uh, you can never be separated from it. Think about how Mary is transformed in this story. At the beginning of the story, she's alone. At the end of the story, she's brought into a family. At the beginning of the story, she's stationary. In verse 11, it says that she's standing there, weeping, paralyzed with grief. 
And in the end, she has momentum, she has movement, she's going, she has purpose, she has mission. In the beginning, she's overwhelmed with grief, and in the end, she's overcome with joy. He steps into our sadness and he heals us. Which is not to say that we won't experience sadness again, because in many ways, the journey that he takes us on as we follow him involves more sadness, more grief, and more loss. But he promises, I will be with you. And I'm taking you to a destination. I'm taking you to a kingdom where I will personally one day wipe away every tear. And all that is sad will become untrue. And I will make all things new. This is our hope. This is where he is taking us. And that is the hope that gives uh, perspective to our sadness. It gives uh, hope for our sadness. That one day we know it, it, it's going away. It has an expiration date stamped into the side of it. He knows us, he seeks us, he heals us. That is good news. Let me pray. Father, I know that there are uh, folks in this room who feel the pit of despair, who feel uh, in touch with sadness in a unique way right now, and I know it can feel like you're distant. I pray that you would... I pray that for folks specifically in that space, that you would give them a unique awareness of your presence, that they would know regardless of how they feel about you, regardless of, uh, of their faith in you, that you are close, that you are near to the brokenhearted. And I pray that they would sense in, their, in the core of who they are that you are a God that, is, uh, that draws near, a God that knows them intimately and personally and promises by your grace and by your very presence to heal them. Give us the eyes to see you. Open up the eyes of our hearts that we might see and behold your kindness, your gentleness, your tenderness as you interact with us in our own sadness. We pray all this in Jesus' name.